This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Emily Spivak about how our clothes are often so much more than fashion, fabric, and thread. They're vital because they're storytelling tools, literally through stains and tears and smells, but also just through the experiences that we have as we're walking through the world. And so our clothing winds up being a trigger for these memories. Here's Debbie Millman. Clothes are commodities. Companies design manufacture, and sell them. We buy them, wear them, give them away, and we sell them, or we just throw them away. But in the meantime, clothes pick up intimate stories from our lives. We remember the person who gave them to us, or the occasion we first wore them, and how they made us feel, or the loved one they used to belong to, or who we took them off for. A full closet is full of memories, No one knows this better than Emily Spivak. Her project, Worn Stories, was recently published as a book with dozens of personal stories about clothing from the likes of Roseanne Cash and John Hodgman to Marina Abramovich and Myra Kelman. Emily Spivak is here today to talk about Worn Stories as well as some of the other projects she's taken on in her dynamic career. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me, Debbie. So I understand you grew up in Delaware, and you spent a lot of time at the beach. One of the first stories I discovered in my research for today's show was how you found a pair of sandals your mom used to wear to the beach in a shop, and the crazy flashback that ensued when you saw them. Why the crazy flashback? I guess it was because I hadn't actually thought about them in probably 10, 15 years It was like a moment of deja vu almost. They were familiar to me and I wasn't quite sure why. And I had to kind of go back and think about what it was that I recognized, what was familiar. And then I sort of had to build that memory on just that basic pair of sandals and kind of pieced it together and remembered that it was something that my mother used to wear and she used to wear them to the beach and I could see her tanned feet and then I could, you know, kind of like work backwards from there. Did you end up buying the sandals? Yes. (laughs) And when your mother saw them, what did she think? As she's done with a lot of the things that I have purchased over the years, she sort of shakes her head and she's like, I used to have those. You know, I, I used to have just that pair. And I was like, exactly, Mom. That's why I wound up with them. Or she shakes her head sort of like, I can't believe my daughter is wearing this. So you graduated from Brown University in 2001 with a degree in art and semiotics. What were you planning on doing at that time? Well, I had been working on a film, which was going to be my senior film thesis. And right around that time, I also had started thinking about this idea for a not-for-profit organization. And I decided to write a business plan for it, having never written a business plan before, and also having studied art and art theory and making things while I was in college. And semiotics so, is really helpful for business <laughs> plans, I found. Right. And so I picked up a couple of books and wrote a business plan for this organization. I thought that I was going to do something that was sort of more directly right out of college, specifically art making. And um, this opportunity came about. I wound up 
winning one of the awards for the business plan competition. It was the first nonprofit to receive funding. I got office space donated. I was incubated pro bono by a business incubator. And it was sort of like all the pieces fell together so that I was able to pursue that project. And was this when you were working in the showroom of Betsy Johnson? No, that was after that. Okay. That was after that. So I spent a summer doing that. And that was interesting. Interesting is never a good word. <laughs> It's like wonderful, amazing, nice, crappy, but right. interesting yeah. as always. Uh, well, I learned a lot from it. And I learned that that perhaps wasn't the right move for me. That wasn't necessarily the thing that I wanted to pursue, the sort of traditional fashion Seventh Avenue trajectory. There has always been something about clothing that I've been drawn to. And it's almost like I've sort of prodded at it and then recoiled and then poked at it again and then recoiled and haven't quite been sure what I want to do with it or what it is that draws me in. And having the internship at Betsy Johnson was helpful because it made me recognize that, okay, well, you know, this sort of traditional working in a showroom kind of thing, that might not be the right angle for me. And perhaps not even working, having anything, doing any work connected to fashion. Maybe I'll just like it from afar in some ways or appreciate it from afar. Do you have memories of being a kid or a teenager and sort of pouring through issues of Vogue with fantasies of glamour and sophistication and all of that? Not at all. Oh. Um, <laughs> Darn. <laughs> what I was doing mostly, though, especially when I got into early teenage years, was going to thrift stores and going to vintage stores and putting together crazy outfits and you know, I was doing a little bit of sewing. I was doing a little bit of adapting some of my clothes. I was doing a lot of digging around in these vintage stores and putting together some unusual combinations of things. And that was kind of a way to express myself. Let's go back in time a little bit, Emily. When you were 10 years old, your mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she had additional bouts of cancer when you were 16, 18, and 20. After all that, your mother now is healthy and refers to herself, among many other things, as a victor. I think that says a lot about her, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, she's a spunky, incredible woman, and I have learned so much from her and from my experience with her and my family as she was diagnosed and as she went through treatment and one of the things that made me really recognize is as sort of corny as it sounds to not take the time that you have for granted. And, you know, if there's something that you feel like you really want to pursue, something that you really want to do, there's no time to waste. So I, I have learned a lot from her. You observed the impact of surgery, medication, radiation and chemotherapy treatments on your mom and watched her struggle to find clothes that were comfortable and stylish and a wig that didn't look fake in order to maintain her dignity. And I understand that is when you first realized that a tangible way you could help her was by locating comfortable and attractive clothing that she could easily wear after her mastectomy as well as during treatment. And I read that it wasn't about spending a lot of time or money. It was just about finding clothes that she liked and made her feel good. And I also read that you would raid her closet to see what old things that you could make new again. What kinds of things did you make for her? It was like digging up things that she could look at from a different perspective. You know, after she had a, a mastectomy, it was difficult for her to lift up her arm. So clothes that were easy to maneuver into, that buttoned down the front, 
when she had radiation treatment, it was almost like getting a very bad sunburn. And so finding clothes that were really soft and that would feel good against her skin, that would provide some relief. So it was going into her closet looking for things that it wasn't like, oh, you know, this navy blue matches with this, you know, green bottom or something like that. It was more like, oh, you know, have you thought about the shirt because of how soft it is? Have you thought about the cut of the skirt because it's going to help you? But also things that she felt good about wearing, too. So this experience inspired you to create Shop Well With You, an actual business. Can you describe the concept of Shop Well With You and what you accomplished? Shop Well With You is a not-for-profit organization that helps women with cancer improve their body image and quality of life by using their everyday clothing as a wellness tool. I started it right after I graduated from college, um, and I ran it as the executive director for about six years. The program worked with women who are cancer survivors, and we did direct service programs within hospitals where we'd go and we'd do body image-related workshops. We'd work with women one-on-one, and then we had a website that was collecting these body image tips and suggestions, but also the like little mom-and-pop shops that were maybe making clothing that were made for people who were going through treatment, you know, a shirt that you could easily roll up and get an IV without having to take it off. So letting people know that there were certain things like that out there for them, but also showing them that they could work with what they already had and be comfortable and how to cross that line between feeling like a patient to being a person again. I read a quote on the website that I'd like to share. I want to read it because it really moved me. While having cancer makes some women want to reinvent themselves, others may want to return to the way things were before their diagnosis. One thing is certain, maintaining a positive body image is an important part of the healing process. What you wear on the outside can impact how you feel on the inside. And I think that's beautiful. But I want to ask why. Why does what we wear on the outside impact how we feel on the inside? I know that when I am dressed a certain way, I feel better about myself. But really, it makes no difference to who we are, our DNA, our soul, our our whole being. So why does it have that much effect on us? I think that that's just this instinctual kind of thing. And when you put on something that, that makes you feel good about yourself, you hold yourself differently. You interact with the world differently. Your body language changes. You're able to communicate with people in a different way. And also there's this mode of feeling like you are able to express yourself. You're able to sort of put your identity out there in a way that you're not always able to do just by the words that you say or, you know, some of the other signals that you give off when you're communicating and interacting with people in the world. So for six years, as you mentioned, you worked tirelessly to shape this grassroots organization. You developed free programs to assist women. You launched the Shop Well With You website, developed, wrote, and edited print materials, produced public relations and community outreach. You styled program participants and models for fashion shows, developed sponsorship packages, and the list goes on and on and on. You ultimately made Shop Well With You into an incredible, valuable source for women cancer survivors nationwide. What is the status of your involvement now? It's pretty minimal. You know, that was basically the first gig I had after graduating from college, which was pretty intense for someone in their early 20s to just sort of engage with while 
a lot of my friends were either going to grad school or kind of figuring out what they wanted to do. You were running a business. And working with women who were, you know, were, were struggling. So it was intense. And as we talked about, I mean, I went to, I, I studied art. I always have loved making things. I felt like I was a little bit burnt out from the experience. I learned an incredible amount, but it was emotionally very draining. And I also felt like creatively not as fulfilled as I wanted to feel in my work. So I got the website into a place where I really felt like it could serve as a resource for quite some time. And now it just sort of is, it's out there. You know, I wanted to be able to bring my best to the organization. And then it felt like it was time to move on to the next thing. So before we talk about the next thing, which is also really fascinating, I also want to mention to our listeners that you also entered and won Glamour Magazine's Top 10 College Women Competition (laughs) in 2000. I am really jealous. I entered in 1983, (laughs) and I did not win. You entered in 2000, and you did. You're digging everything up. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) What was that like? Well, it was fun. It was very unexpected. I think it was at a moment where I was trying to build awareness about Shop Well With You, and that felt like a contest that would make sense to apply to and to try. It's so funny to think about it now. You know, like, was I, like, looking in the magazine and I saw it? Because I didn't read Glamour. I don't even know how I knew about it. Maybe I saw it like in career services at Brown? Who knows? Well, I read it and I applied because I saw it in the magazine. That's not fair that you won. (laughs) Well, there were a number of us. It was fun. It's amazing. It was an amazing, amazing thing. Well done. Yeah. So your next venture was a web-based project titled Sentimental Value, which you started in 2007, which was based on an experience you had looking for a pair of vintage heels on eBay. And while searching for the shoes, you discovered a Playboy bunny costume from the mid-60s. It was complete with the earpiece, the tail, the stockings, and it had the vintage heels. So how did that discovery turn into an art project and a website? Well, what happened is not only did I find all the different elements that make up, I guess, a Playboy bunny costume, but I found the ID card of the woman who had the costume, who had owned it, who had worn it. And it was her black and white photo and her name was included with all the different elements that had been posted on eBay. And there was something at that moment that just clicked for me, seeing that woman in her street clothes very sort of generic-looking photo, and then seeing this pretty over-the-top outfit, something compelled me to to want to look for more of those connections, more of those stories, more of those relationships between the person who originally had that thing and the garments that were being sold on eBay. So I just started looking around to see if I could find more stories, more anecdotes that people were sharing about clothing that they were selling, what they did while they were wearing them, why they were getting rid of them. I found stories based on a basic t-shirt or something like a Victorian gown. It's something that everyone can relate to in, in one way or another. So some of the more quirky treasures you've discovered include a man who was selling sneakers with air pockets slashed by an ex-girlfriend a sequined gown worn by a woman who believed to have levitated in it, 
earrings worn by the official White House gift wrapper for Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, and a rayon blazer owned by a woman who sold all her clothes to join a nudist camp. How on earth do you find these things? What kind of search do you put in? (laughs) Well, I spend a lot of time on eBay. I do a lot of digging, and there are search terms that I will use. I also, there are different areas where I'm more prone to find things. So I'll look up things connected to a wedding dress, and then I'll go down, you know, a rabbit hole there or something around relationships. But at this point, I've collected about 600 stories or more, and it just comes from doing a lot of digging, and and I've gotten so accustomed to that process that I can kind of do it a little bit more quickly now. Now, you also started bidding on some of the best garments. Right. And so what are some of the stranger garments that you now own, and where do you store them? Oh, boy. Well, I store them in my apartment, (laughs) which needs to change at some point. I've got an extra closet that has bins in it and everything's organized and categorized. And so I've got my own little archive in my apartment. I started bidding on some of the garments in 2010. And it was when this pair of stockings resurfaced that I had posted about probably the year before. And it was a great post. You know, a guy had been a PA on a porno in the 70s in Michigan. (laughs) And he was taken back to the place where it was shot, which had been in a barn. And the owners had always wondered why there had been shag carpeting in the barn when he moved in and this huge bed. And he then showed them this hiding place that they would use in case they were raided. And it was big enough for the actors to hide and also the reels of film. And when he showed them the hiding place, he found this lot of stockings in there. And so he was selling the stockings. And it just had been such an involved story. And I had posted it on Sentimental Value. But when I saw it resurface, there was a moment where I was like, I must have these stockings. I must have them. So that was the first thing that I bid on. And do you have a budget? Do you have a certain parameter of money that you will spend? Low. Low. <laughs> it just, I mean, many of the things are, you know, $10, $15, Eventually, I realized, like, okay, you know what? I'm only really going to bid on the best of the best because I live in a, an apartment in Brooklyn. There's only so much room in my studio. And, you know, I really want just the best stories. Did you ever wonder if the stories might not be true? I know that Rob Walker did a book several years ago called Significant Objects, wherein he asked writers, he gave writers something that he'd bought on eBay and asked people to write stories about what the past history could be of that object. Did that ever worry you? It has definitely dawned on me that some of these stories could be manufactured in some way. But it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, levitation is levitation, right? Levitation is levitation. And somehow that woman felt compelled to share that on eBay on a platform that really isn't meant for storytelling. You know, usually people just post the size and the condition and the color. But for some reason, these people feel very compelled to share their story. There are moments where the story feels so outrageous that I can tell that something just doesn't feel right and I won't post it and I won't collect it. But for the most part, I mean, these are just people sharing their stories. And whether it's cathartic, whether it's a marketing tool, whether they're 
lonely and they just feel like writing and eBay is the platform to get something out, so be it. But there's something that's really capturing a, a moment in time. And I feel like I want to grab those stories before they disappear. I have a eBay story I can share with you. I've oh, actually please. never told anybody. Please. So many, many, many years ago, I travel a lot in the work that I do in my day job. And I was going out with a man at the time who, whenever I traveled, wanted me to bring back some sort of trinket for him. And I happen to have already started a fairly robust collection of snow globes. So I thought, well, <laughs> I will bring him a snow globe after each trip, which I did. And I always look on eBay for great snow globes as well. So after we broke up one day, I was perusing eBay on the snow globes sort of listings and came across the lot of snow globes <laughs> that I had given him that he was selling. Oh. My God. <laughs> and for one oh. brief evil moment, I wanted to buy them, but I didn't. Of all the moments for you to have gone on eBay, because, you know, an auction lasts, what? Seven days, seven 10 days, days generally yeah. on yeah. average. Yep. And you happen to go. A lot. And I thought, wow, those look really familiar. And then I clicked on it and I was like, it can't possibly be. And then it was. And then there was this story. And he even said, given to me by my ex-girlfriend. That is a great eBay story. And yes, and very serendipitous. Let's go back to talking about you. In 2012, you became editor of the Smithsonian Institution's Threaded, the institution's only blog dedicated to all things sartorial and historical. Your pieces have explored the history, memories, and anecdotes behind clothing, jewelry, accessories, and textiles from the institution's vast collections. I like to talk about the piece that you wrote on Joan Didion's packing list. And I'd like to read an excerpt from the article because it's so marvelously written. I was in that stage of packing where the suitcase was empty and the bed was piled haphazardly with clothes and the closet looks ransacked when suddenly and fondly I recall preparing for summer camp at Timber Tops in the Poconos. Every year we'd get that list from Timber Tops, a numerically descending inventory of summer. Fifteen pairs of socks, five pairs of underwear, Ten T-shirts, five pairs of shorts, three towels, two bathing suits, one pair of long pants, one long sleeve shirt, one pair of sneakers, one pair of flip-flops, toothpaste, toothbrush, sunblock, bug spray. It was such a methodically satisfying process, gathering those items. Here was everything you needed for fun and freedom, and all you had to do was go down the list, cross the items off, fold them neatly into a duffel bag, and head into the woods. Today, no one gives you a list. What should the young professional woman in New York City pack for her frequent and varied travels? And then I remembered Joan Didion's packing list from the White Album, which I quickly found on my bookshelf. So, Emily, can you tell us about the list? She always seemed to be able to find room to pack a typewriter. Somehow. Somehow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, what I loved about her list was the simplicity of it. She had, you know, a couple of pairs of stockings. She had, you know, a skirt. She had a basic top. There was something that was just incredibly simple and elegant. And there was something about her uniform and the, the elegance of her uniform. And going back to what we were talking about before, about feeling comfortable or just feeling like it's yourself. You know, whatever you put on, wherever you are, that it's just it represents who you are and you feel good about it. So 
it just felt like it represented Joan Didion in her in her fullest. Oh, it was like a blueprint for how to be a really cool, sophisticated, effortless Southern Californian woman. You nailed it. That's exactly <laughs> it. And and sort of something that we can all aspire to someday yes. be. Yes. And and probably never ever reach. Yes. <laughs> right, right. So your interest in the stories behind the things that we wear, whether it be on threaded, whether it be on sentimental value, led to your creation of Worn Stories, which is a collection of stories about clothing and memory that was first a website and most recently was an Amazon Book of the Month and now a New York Times bestselling book. Congratulations, Emily. New York Times bestseller. It's a little bit surreal. That is amazing. Very exciting. I have such vivid memories of details of certain clothes I wore in certain situations in my life. For example, I remember having to go to family court when I was nine years old with my mother. I was going to see my father there, who I hadn't seen in about a year. And I remember I got all dressed up because I wanted to look nice when he saw me. And I wore an orange and pink dress with puffy sleeves and white rubber boots. And I remember being excited and nervous about facing him. I remember a dress I wore on the first day of sixth grade. I remember the dress I wore in the hospital when I was four. Emily, why do we have these memories? I think that we have things in our life that we hold on to, and those are triggers for memories. And our clothes are such a specific trigger for memory. You know, we go through our day, things happen, we don't have something to sort of hang that experience on necessarily, but clothing is something that we can hang that experience on. Clothing is really porous. We sort of go through our lives and most of us are wearing clothing. And all it is of, a cultural universal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's a uniform or it's, you know, a certain kind of textile, but we're all enshrouding ourselves in some way. And that material is porous and it takes on experiences and you know, literally through stains and tears and smells, but also just through the experiences that we have as we're walking through the world. And so... I think that our clothing winds up being a trigger for these memories. You've stated that you've always been interested in clothing almost more so than fashion because it is so universal. In some way or another, we all adorn our bodies with garments or some sort of covering, which makes it so relatable. Clothing can be used as a lens to study history, culture, and anthropology. It's versatile and an important vehicle for creative self-expression. And all of the tales and worn stories seem to treat clothing as vital instead of disposable. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think they're vital because they're storytelling tools. And capturing those stories feels vital to me. So that's the connection that I think that I'm making. And different from our assumptions that we make about clothing in general when we make associations between clothing and fashion. Fashion being something that's more disposable. Fashion being something that is based on trends or is only available to a certain group of people, something that's exclusive. Clothing is much more accessible. And there's something about that accessibility and that universality that makes it vital. In a review of your book in the Financial Times, writer Joe Ellison states, Clothes matter. 
What we wear, even though we might not care to admit it, matters. Clothes are a language by which we are judged, a shorthand that allows us to communicate with others and an expression of our feelings of self-worth or status. Moreover, these books take the subjects of fashion, style, and image and start a conversation outside the typical forums of sartorial discussion. And she's talking about your book and another book that is also about clothing and a little bit about memory. Yours is better. Why do we use clothes as a telegraphic way of expressing who we are. They're almost like our own branded elements of of, of our projection. Well, what else do we have that is on us every single day that's representing who we are? I mean, what else do we have that's really communicating with the world? And it's just something so easy to kind of have on and to use as a mode of expression. We can invite someone into our home. We can introduce someone to our friends. But our clothing is a way of just kind of to express ourselves, too. Whether or not we think that we're into fashion or we're not into fashion, we're saying something through what we wear. How did you decide who to feature in the book? There are some big-time celebrities, authors and writers, Roseanne Cash, Marina Abramovich, Cynthia Rowley, Simon Doonan, Andy Spade, Myra Kalman. How did you make the decision about who to feature? I chose people based on their stories. How did you hear about Roseanne Cash's story? The way that these stories came about, you know, I look through the table of contents and some of them are, you know, friends of friends of friends. Some of them were absolute cold emails that I sent. And there are a handful of them that are actually just straight from Craigslist. I wanted a really diverse cross-section of people, old and young, creative people, you know, people who I thought would be good storytellers. That's really what it came down to. For Craigslist, for example, I mean, I just went into different random cities around the country and asked people if they had stories based on a piece of clothing. And I got some interesting responses. And then I'd hop on the phone with those people and see if there was something there. And was one of the criteria that the piece of clothing needed to still be in existence? Yes, The piece of clothing still needed to be in existence because it was documented for the book. And also because I was curious what the person decided to hold on to and why they decided to hold on to it. Also, when you look at the book, it's photographs of the garments. You know people. No people. There are no images of the person. I wanted the story to speak for that person. I wanted you to be able to imagine that person, what that person looks like, their tone, their voice from their story. And I didn't want an image of that person wearing the clothing to distract from that. And it's interesting in terms of the actual evidence of the memory, those clothes, the things that we still hold on to become evidence of this actually happening. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've had memories of certain experiences that I've then shared with other people that were part of the experience. And they remember it in a very different way, whereas the clothes become evidence of that moment actually being real the way you remember it. Right, right. And then in some places, I mean, you actually see the physical manifestation of that story. I mean, just on the cover alone, there's Sherry Turkle who, you know, talks about the mouse-nibbled shirt. And so there's no questioning whether or not that happened, that that happened, uh, you know, and she's got the evidence to prove it. 
In the book, certain pieces of clothing become good luck charms. For example, the dancer Tyler Peck reveals that she's worn the same pair of leg warmers before every one of her performances as a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet. Why do you think we imbue these objects with such magical thinking? I think that we want to try to understand why certain things happen. And I think that we use our clothing to kind of try to comprehend that. Our clothing is very concrete. But when we have these moments where there's good luck or bad luck, we want to try to understand why it is that that happened. And because we can't actually say, you know, this is the specific reason, I think we map that onto our clothing. It's like baseball players that won't change their socks when they're on a winning streak. Right. It's like they want to have some control over it in some way. Yeah, yeah, control, absolutely. I think that there's something about control and there's something about, you know, luck is completely out of your control. But wearing this thing, you can try to actually contain or harness some of that luck in some way. In the introduction to your book, you write that we all have a memoir in miniature living in a garment we've worn. What are some of the favorite memoirs of yours in the book? That's a trick question. Because I, I mean, I love all of the stories in the book. And I know that's a kind of an easy answer. But what was so exciting for me in working on this project was getting on the phone with someone or meeting with someone or asking someone if they'd participate and then having no idea what story they might share with me. And that was my favorite part of this whole project. The book features some really heartbreaking stories as well as some really happy stories. The heartbreaking stories are the ones that I think I like the best. But I was really intrigued by the woman who recounted the tale of being given a negligee by a man that was in love with her. And she still has it, but she doesn't have any interest in the man. Another woman who saved almost like pieces of clothing as trophies from one night stands. The book also features the suit that Piper Kerman, the author of the book, Orange is the New Black, wore in court the day she was sentenced and describes it as a vintage 50s coffee and cream colored tweed pencil skirt suit that her lawyer wanted her to wear so that the judge would be reminded of his own daughter or niece or neighbor when he looked at her. I don't think that worked out so well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who knows what kind of sentence she could have gotten, right? So, but I mean, I think that we wear these things to not only accentuate our own personalities, but also to try to create a different personality. Oh, absolutely. I think we use these different pieces of clothing or even brands again in an effort to project who we want people to think we are. Right. Exactly. Which is is extraordinary, especially if we have kept that piece of clothing for all these years or decades to convince ourselves we're that person. Yeah, that we are still that person. That we are still, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Emily, you also include a story of your own in the book, what's been called a notable loquacious ode to a pair (laughs) of flip-flops worn precisely perhaps because they are so ordinary. Can you share the story with us? Sure. So it's a story of a very basic pair of black rubber flip-flops that I got in the mid to late 90s in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, which is where I spent a lot of time growing up. Where your mom wore her sandals. Where my mother wore her sandals, exactly. 
And it was one of those summers where I was walking down the sidewalk on my way to the beach. My flip-flops broke. I was with my grandmother at the time. She said, well, let's go into this shop and we'll get you a new pair. And so I went into the shop with her. And there were all sorts of varieties, polka dots, striped, bright colors. And I chose this very, very basic black pair. And fast forward to today, I still have those flip-flops. So 15, 16 15, years 16 later. years later. So somehow through years of just inadvertent preservation, they have stayed with me and they've been with me on every trip to any beach that I've been to. And I say in the story, it's almost like they were these things that were just supposed to be a, a nothing purchase. And somehow they've lasted for such a long time. And all of these memories and experiences have been mapped onto them, quite literally, as you can see the indents and the scratches and the, the markings have all been rubbed away. So, I understand you also have the first concert t-shirt you ever bought. What band was it? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I will proudly say that it was Millie Vanilli. Awesome. That was, that was the first concert I ever went to. I was in sixth grade. I went with my mom and my best friend at the time. Her name's Biz. And I remember also going to the Gap beforehand and getting a coral-colored mock turtleneck and matching socks to wear to the concert. So Please, you must show me a picture. I'm sure I have it somewhere. Yes, I, I need to dig that up. But the thing that has certainly remained is the Millie Vanilli t-shirt, which I wear proudly. Now, you also began sharing more stories on the Worn Stories website, which has been on hold since the book came out. What's it been like to be back on the blog? I think I always looked at Worn Stories as a project. It was more than just putting out a book. When I created the website, I saw it as something that would be ongoing. I mean, at some point I'd love to do an exhibition or I'd love to do a column or it can take so many different forms. And so the project did not end with the book coming out. And in fact, now that more people know about the project, more people are sharing their stories. And that's what's really exciting. So I'm still collecting stories and sort of there's a curated collection of stories. And then there's also a section where people can submit their own stories as well. It's called Your Stories. And people have been submitting their stories and people can also submit stories using the hashtag Warren Stories on Instagram. So people will frequently take a photo and post it on Instagram and then write the story. And that actually winds up on the website too. So it's an ongoing project. A labor of love. Yes. The last thing I want to talk about is really something I'd like to read, which is the first piece that you put back up on the blog, starting the Worn Stories again. And it is an ode to Moon Boots by the brilliant illustrator, artist, and author Christoph Niemann. And I'd actually like to share it with our listeners. In the 80s, I was wearing a pair of Moon Boots for about seven minutes, and it was traumatizing. They were all the rage, and after much haggling, I convinced my mom to buy me a pair. We went to a shoe store, and I quickly found a pair I loved. All was good, except I was 13 years old, but already 6 foot 4 inches tall, shoe size 13. This was more or less unheard of at the time. Even the largest size didn't fit, and that was that with my dreams of ever wearing moon boots. I was so angry that I decided to stop growing. 
which actually worked. Emily, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. To find out more about Emily Spivak, Warren Stories, and her many other marvelous endeavors, you can go to emilyspivak.info. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.